Since the dawn of humanity, we have strived to tell stories in new and novel ways. Visual storytelling is in our blood. When early humans looked at the stars, they saw stories. When they went to their caves, they tried to tell their stories by way of art. Though the medium has changed across the millennia, who among us has not drawn on a wall to try to express that which cannot be said only in words? Cartoons are the human mind crying to break free from its shackles and spread its wings to rejoin the stars. Not to be dramatic or anything. Yeah, no, no. I, yeah, I wrote all that while I was taking a dump. Uh, <laughs> Will you? <ya? laughs> Um, so this is On Two's podcast. I'm Will. I'm Adric. And today we have the start of, is this going to be three or four parts? I don't know how. We'll see. I'm, I'm guessing it'll actually end up being, are... I, I'm guessing it'll end up being four. All right. But we're doing a series on the history of animation just to get everyone you know, kind of acquainted oh. with the stuff that we're talking about. Well, we should have called it Anna Month. Anna Month? Yeah, because it's four episodes and it's a whole... But then what are we going to do when we do a whole month of anime? Shit. Yeah. Didn't, didn't think about that, did you? I didn't. And also the fact that this entire show is based on animation makes it kind of redundant generally. Yeah, <laughs> vaguely. Just a little. <laughs> it is like... Yeah, we could call it like animation 101, 102, 103, 104. Yeah. But um and that's then later do like 201 and just go real fucking we're freaking masterclass animation. We're the American education system now and there's nothing you can do about it. We're about to mm-hmm. get a lot worse. Yep, everyone, we're sending you homework. <laughs> we're going to have 300 to 400 students in each classroom. Also that'll because, be $12,000, please. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I figured we'd start off with our own personal histories with cartoons. So, Adric, what, uh, what, what, when's like the first time you saw cartoons? What, what's your history with them? Yeah. So I didn't, um, this is something we've talked about a little bit on the show before, but I didn't watch a ton of cartoons when I was, when I was quite little. Um, I spent the first five years of my life, uh, living in a, a tiny town in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, and I only watched TV when I went to, um, it, we, called them our neighbors they were not actually our neighbors they were they lived like <laughs> 25 miles away um but our, our buddies barry and sunny's house and i would watch noggin and noggin was a um uh, a kids program um that had a little bit of animation i um, thought it was a whole network it may it may be a network I, maybe it became i thought it was a single later. channel at the time yeah um but uh, it is it is evidently still around. It's like what Peppa Pig and stuff is on now. Um, but in the 1990s, it was um, quite a bit different. And so it was it was right around the time um, when it was introduced by Nickelodeon, which is, you know, as everybody knows, a, a classic animation. Um, 
And yeah. the one of the things that I remember very fondly was the the like animated title sequences between them because it was a very much an animation based um based medium. I tried well, to oh, go ahead. That's like an aspect of animation that I've always wanted to look a bit more into is just like the historically like title sequences and stuff like that have been animated. Yeah. And that's like just a kind of background thing that goes into all of this where it's like, I'm sure that there are title sequences that revolutionized animation. Absolutely. Right. Like it feels like one of those things where like business people randomly would spend a ton of money on, on animation um, I think to a video that I, I watched relatively recently, which was um, Tom Scott talking about an animated title sequence um, for the like for like a British gaff TV show um, wow. and like how complicated and dramatic and like how much time and money was spent on these simply because like it was one of the times where people wanted to show off. And it's like it reminds me of that like art as um Hostilization or art as advertising yeah and so it and and almost and and advertising is like more specific to me where it's talking about like using it as a tool to convey a message this is just all about showing off this is just like here's how powerful mm. and, and wealthy this is that we could hire a bunch of these very complicated like you can look at animation and instantly tell that it was expensive that it took time and then that is sort of um yeah. stuck with me as like one of one of the things that people um still talk about hand-drawn animation even when computer animation makes sense or like it's something that we're going to get into about the differences between these two and the like advent of computer computer animation is that hand-drawn animation has remained a status symbol for for programs i think and for businesses and oh definitely uh i remember and I and I do think that like when when I was watching these um, animated series on Noggin at my neighbor's house, <laughs> that there was like a quality to it and like um, a homespunness to it that made it feel more legitimate. And it was like maybe one of the reasons why my parents let me watch those programs as opposed to others. Yeah. Also, they might have been like educational. I presume. Noggin. Yeah. Noggin means head, and that's where the brain is held. Uh, so I and that's assume just good branding. it was, yeah, that's educational. <laughs> um, and then, you know, throughout uh, further parts of my life, I, I watched, you know, the um, the usuals. Um, so like I watched mm -hmm. Rugrats and SpongeBob yep. and, and all those. But the big one, the big, big one that we my brother and I were super into was the original Scooby-Doo series. That was like oh yeah the thing that we watched um, more than anything else. We'd check out VHSs from the library. We would um, when we would stay at my grandparents, they had um, cable TV, and so they had the Boomerang channel, and it was just always mm -hmm. on there. Um, so that's that's like my my early history with it, and then um, going into like uh, ten and eleven, and when my brother then because my brother's five years younger than me, um, he would watch. A lot of the the same programs because like you know spongebob was on for so long <laughs> yeah that it and it's know, just good it is like just good. it's it's so legitimately funny for 
like 90% of this stuff. It's just so good. Yeah, exactly. And so likewise, I think it was one of the shows that my parents were like, this is actually kind of funny. You can watch this one. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's my like early childhood background of, of animation. It was, it's like a big mix of educational and then leading into the one show that like, I feel like everybody my age watched a bunch of in there. Yep. Their previous prepubescent years of which was SpongeBob and nothing but. Well, uh, as far as my history goes, so I am a military kid. My dad was a Marine. My mom was in the Navy until they got married and had kids. And then she swapped over to the Naval Reserve so mm. that she could just move around to the same area with him. So I grew up on a DOD bases. And when we were living in Germany, one of the only like good kids channel that was on the DOD uh, programming because... You know, you could watch German TV, but I didn't speak German well enough (laughs) to do that. Uh, But it was very early Cartoon Network. So when I was, you know, first grade or so, I was watching like the Flintstones and Johnny Quest and like the Space Ghost cartoon prior to it being Space Ghost Coast, (laughs) prior to Space Ghost Coast. Like, a lot of those uh, things that they were ridiculing in Adult Swim. Were the things that you were currently watching. (laughs) Yeah, that I legitimately watched when I was a kid. Amazing. Um, And that just kind of made me really like cartoons, and I just kept watching them as I was growing up. And where it really hit its stride... Um, obviously there was like the Simpsons, which I, I fucking loved, but it, you know, that came out the same year that I was born. So it, you know, was just kind of a background noise that was there the whole time. But when Adult Swim came out, uh, I watched the first, like the first night that they did Adult Swim. And that's a freaking uh, claim to fame right there, my dude. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, my brother and I actually, st- like, we saw that it was coming, and we stayed up and watched the whole damn thing, and it was awesome. That's amazing. And, yeah, like, I still watch a lot of cartoons. I still really like, like, I was just watching fucking the new DuckTales last night. <laughs> I saw you live, is, basically live tweeting that. It was great. Yeah, it rules. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't talk about most of the, like, um, after early childhood, but, um, I did also watch a bunch of the Simpsons. Most, again, most of my media that I, that consumed was, like, at friends' houses and things like that. Yep. Um, up until, like, uh, so I would watch the Simpsons at my buddy Gunnar's house, um, which was, like, mind-blowing at the time. It was so good and, like, completely different than anything else I'd ever watched. And then likewise, when I was like maybe 13 or something, I got this old CRT TV and I I moved into my parents' basement (laughs) at 13 (laughs) and um, uh, would stay up all night watching Adult Swim. And it was like, you know, whatever was on. So I got really into Futurama um, and like uh, a couple other shows, but I think Futurama was, was the big one. And then... 
also started realizing that I could watch things on the internet, and so started watching. Oh yeah, like anime and uh, and other things around that time as well. This is when Adult Swim started putting all their stuff online. That was big for me. That was big, man. Yeah, and it's hard to like look back on and and think about how inaccessible media used to be in comparison to today. Like you just couldn't watch. Yeah, and I think that's that kind of speaks to why I wound up watching so much cartoons. It's like, yeah, yeah, we didn't have the internet. So in the morning I would just flip around and like, that's why I wound up watching so much of, I don't know, Buzz Lightyear and Star Command. Oh my gosh. I remember Uh, that show. Yeah. Because it was just on in the morning before I go to school. (laughs) Yeah. And it was also like you'd flip around on channels and you'd see something animated and you're like, pretty sure that I was going to be good because there was that that time when we were growing up and probably a little bit later for for me than for you but where you you could flip something on and if it was animated you know that people had spent like time and money and I don't know if you if I knew like why I thought it was going to be as good as it was but it well and there is that whole thing of like when you're young there's like you don't recognize that things can be bad. Oh, so that's you're true. just like, Oh, I just, I like this cause it's a thing and it's in front of me. Right. Um, that's a very good point. Oh, the first, um, anime I think I watched when I was, when I was like maybe 10 or 11, my friend Niels had a VHS copy of princess Mononoke. And that like Ooh. blew my mind. That's a good one. It, it was, you know, transformative and it is like one of those pieces of art that has stuck with me more than just about anything else in my entire life because like how how could it not when viewing it at such a relatively young age and not seeing anything like it ever before and watching it and being just like so consumed and and amazed by the quality of media that this was because like Think about every other animated movie that you'd ever seen as a kid up until mm-hmm. that point, and then you watch uh, a Miyazaki film, and you're like, "Huh, it's yeah, mind bending." Yeah, like, this just is the unreal. quality because <laughs> it's it is like Disney, like right. the the quality of it. Uh, for me, the first anime, similarly Ghibli. I've probably mentioned this in the past, but we had a uh, a VHS copied off of tv (laughs) copy of uh not nausicaa of the valley of the wind um but warriors of the valley of the wind the uh the chopped and screwed version that harvey (laughs) weinstein tried to make like the boy the main character oh my gosh i did not realize the extent (laughs) oh yeah it sucks that's gnarly tell me more so so we had that and like we we watched that tape until it wore out and right. then also uh my cousin Jason uh when I was probably far too young to be watching this uh gave my brother and I a bootleg uh Ranma one half oh my gosh tape like a few <laughs> tapes of it I read the manga of that when I was uh, probably about the same age cuz the library had like but our public library must have had like somebody who was really into manga because they had like <laughs> Full Metal Alchemist and Rama One Half and um, DBZ and like a bunch of other stuff. And, I, and it was a similar experience of reading it and being like, this is unlike anything yeah. else I've ever read. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's 
it's really powerful looking back on it like and and it sounds like you've had more experiences with this than i have just by the nature of traveling around so much and living in different places but just like experiencing media from different cultures of any kind is oh, yeah. like, extremely powerful when you're young learning that the world is so much bigger than you previously previously thought it to be and that your your understanding was much more limited about what your what the the world contained than you previously thought well like yeah just the american perception of Right. us being kind of the center of the world which i'm gonna admit these notes that i took kind of draws towards that but that's also due to how hollywood works right so and not just that but just like um something i've been thinking about a lot is the um how american the internet is and obviously it is a it is a a, a place of the world but like a lot of pieces of like official documentation or official um information is written from a western if not explicitly american perspective so things like uh i don't know the history of animation on wikipedia for example yeah is written probably by mostly americans and probably from an american perspective and i'm i'm sure that there is um, some amount of care that has been taken to to attempt to like bring it into line with reality and and talk about more things but it's like it, it reminds me of of learning that mathematics was um for the most part an arabic yeah um, from the middle east yeah i'm trying to trying to think of the word to describe what mathematics is other than mathematics but uh, a discipline discovery yeah. invention i don't know because it's kind of those things but it's more than yeah. anyway but that it, it was not a you know, a thing that happened in the country that I was born in. And it's very difficult to escape sort of the the gravity pull of America, especially within America. And so there's going to be a lot of gaps in here. And I mean, well, we can get into it. Yeah. We start off with a 26,000 year gap. <laughs> <laughs> of which nobody was doing anything. Yeah, no one was doing anything. Everyone was just like hanging out. Um, so when we're talking about animation, the way that I think about it is that we're talking about stroboscopic illusion of movement. Oh, I always meaning, say that out loud. Yeah. Meaning that, like, you're just breaking a frame up so that, you know, one picture looks like it feeds into the next picture mm -hmm. so that you're getting this illusion of movement. The strobe yeah. part of that being that it is a um, completely changing from one to the next, right? That it's not an overlay, that it's not anything else. It's it's you have one image, stop, and then new image, yeah. stop. Yeah. And the first instance of that that I could find are from about 30,000 BC. So there are these Paleolithic cave paintings of animals that have too many legs but when you have a flickering firelight, then it kind of fools your brain into thinking that, like, you know, this buffalo is running. That's very cool. Are they painted on, like, rough surfaces to where there's, like, depending on the angle of the light coming at it, you would see some legs and not others? Is that... Or am Possibly. I thinking too complicated what, about what's it? What's really weird with these is that I wasn't able to find, like, no one's actually just taken a fucking candle and gone down to these things and filmed <laughs> them. Um, 
but there are a lot of simulations of them. And yeah, they are on rough surfaces. They're on cave walls. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool to realize that people have been experimenting with this stuff since like forever ago. So the next instance that I could find are uh, some clay pots from about 3000 BC in Iran or Iran. So there's a pottery bowl and it has five sequential images painted around it that are uh, like sequential images showing a goat jumping up to Hell uh, yeah. grab like an olive or some shit out of a tree. I love that for that goat. Yeah, it's it's a good goat. And like, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily call it animation, but, you know, there's something to be said as far as like sequential art. I mean, you spin that bowl and you, you cut some, um, you cut a single frame out and you spin that bowl fast enough suddenly. Yeah. Well, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, critiques of it online. People saying like, oh, well, some of the frames are larger than the other. And (laughs) I don't know that that isn't just like, you know, oh, I'm getting to the end of the page. I better like scrunch up the art (laughs) a little bit, you know? Uh, So the next one that I could find was around a thousand uh, CE. Holy cow. Uh, We have trotting horse lamps. Which is, yeah, so it's those, uh, it's a Chinese lamp. And it uses an impeller at the top, and the hot air from the lamp spins a uh, cylinder that has silhouettes. And it's, like, not fast enough to be animation, but most of these things were, like, showing a horse, you know, just trotting, or, like, a lady walking, or, you know, just, like, walk cycles, basically. Right. The, the thing that makes the most intuitive sense to animate and that you like right. look at a billion times, that makes a ton of sense. Well, and it is weird how often, especially, well, no, even when film gets started, like how much people are like, yo, I gotta, I gotta draw a horse. I gotta film a horse. I gotta sort out what the fuck horses do. Why do <laughs> how do horses run? How are these moving? The frick is a horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, next thing we got. Siga uh, Note, which is an illuminated manuscript from 1470. And it has a flip book in the corner. Interesting. So, yeah, it's like this really old, you know, illuminated manuscript. So this is one of those... I believe this was prior to the printing press. How is oh, this the no, first it was flip book? after the printing press. So there were, there would have been other flip books prior to that, probably. Yeah. But this is the first one that I could actually find where we still have the fucking thing, you know? <laughs> okay, sure. That makes sense. It's it's like, you know, that ancient bowl. Like, yeah, probably there were more of them, but even this one has a good chunk of it knocked off. Right. And I suppose paper over a thousand years is going to go. Yeah. What's the first instance of paper out of curiosity? Uh, I I want to guess papyrus, but I'm probably wrong. I mean, that's what I've heard as well. First use of paper. Oh, interesting. If if we're not counting papyrus, it sounds like the first instance of paper was 
paper as we knew it today was first made by Li Yang in China by Tsai Lun, a Chinese court official. In all likelihood, Tsai mixed mulberry bark, hemp, and rags with water, mashed it into a pulp, pressed off the liquid, and hung out in the thin mat to dry in the sun. Good old huh. mulberry paper. Still still made today. And then papyrus uh, is, is distinguished from it. Um, so but, it's like woven out of reeds? Yeah. Yeah, right? exactly. So it has like a rough surface, is not... Is not um, homogenous but the, yeah. the earliest known extant of paper fragment that has been found is circa 179 BCE which is astonishing that wasn't that like receipt was it because I know one of the earliest pieces of paper that we have is like a receipt that's so good yeah um, this one doesn't ha- doesn't seem to be it seems to be an illustration of some kind which is oh, cool. very appropriate it looks to be like a yeah. map or something similar but I can't exactly tell. It is extremely a fragment. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure that there were flip books prior to this, but you know, this is this is the first like verifiable we have this thing. Yeah. That we could find. I honestly was surprised that flip books weren't a more prevalent thing in the history of animation, although it becomes like kind of clear later why why that didn't uh, pan out mm. which i'm sure you'll get so to. <laughs> yeah next thing we've got is the magic lantern so these came into prominence around the 1600s and they're just a lantern with a glass slide and they had all of these different mechanical mechanisms for like moving things around in the image um yeah and these were frequently back in the day they would be um integrated with stage shows so there was a style of like horror thing that was called uh, phantasmagoria and they would use uh these lanterns as back projections to be like oh there's a spooky ghost back there and you know people (laughs) Back then, people, some of them genuinely were just like, oh my god, a ghost. Uh, that would have been me. Because, I'm extremely yeah, gullible. no one fucking knew. <laughs> uh, but then that as a, an art style uh, emigrated over eastward to Utushi-e. Utushi-e? Yeah. Uh, which is a style of magic lantern show that became popular in 19th century japan and they basically perf- I, I wouldn't say perfected it but they innovated on it they added you know more more different little mechanical things and all kinds of stuff i i watched there's a uh performance that you can find on youtube mm. uh that's actually really cool and uh one of the stories that they did in it was uh very recently or not recently but it was redone by someone and that was in the uh the animation show interesting yeah it's called uh atamayama it's about a guy who won't uh he really likes cherries and he won't not eat the cherry pits because he's like, oh, well, that would be wasteful to not eat the cherry pits. And then a cherry tree grows out of his head and then he dies. 
Um, it's nice to see that they're still incorporating some realism into animation. Uh huh. Because that's exactly yeah, what happens. Yeah, everyone knows that that's, yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> so next up, we have the Fenakistoscope, invented in 1832. So this is a spinning disc with a series of pictures on it. And then there are slits in the disc as well. So what you do is you spin the disc, you look through the slits at a mirror, and then that makes the pictures appear to move around. Why is the mirror important? Oh, so that you can use the slits to break up the image. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Otherwise, yeah, it won't look like it's moving. It'll just look like it's spinning. Unless you can get it to go, like, really fast and get that kind of illusion of movement like you get with a car. Right. And I think I was yeah. um, sort of, even even when you were saying it, I was still uh, picturing the zoetrope, which I, I, I imagine you're going to talk about soon, if not uh, next. It's coming up. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, invented almost simultaneously around December of 1832. By the Benjen- Belgian... Oh, hold up. I'm bad at navigating Google Docs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> by the Belgian physicist Joseph Plateau and the Austrian professor of practical geometry, Simon Stampfer. Huh. It's also interesting the intersection between um, the, like physics and science and art that like early animation has where like a lot of these things are legitimately experimental and like it's also kind of funny thinking back as to like what a physicist meant (laughs) oh yeah And, and a lot of the a lot of the film stuff was just us trying to learn how human beings actually move like early film um the next one that we're getting to is the zoetrope, hey. which uh, you had mentioned, which is invented in 1833, also by Simon Stamfer. So this is similar to the Fenakistoscope, but you just move it to being on the same axis. Um, so it's a big spinning cylinder with slits. You look in the slits and then it, it you're looking at the other side of the cylinder you spin that and you can watch a horse running or whatever yeah the the one that i remember from like museums of science and industry and such was like the the cowboy riding a horse being oh the, yeah the sort of canonical example of this and i i feel like this is one of those things that has been introduced to everybody culturally who uh, ever went to a a science museum as a as a young young one because it's it's just it's very easy to reproduce you just you spin a thing and you look into it and you see a a moving picture well and speaking of uh reproducing it so there's a version of a zoetrope called a linear zoetrope where it's basically just a line of images and you break it up uh with slits again but you you would have to run past it really fast which wasn't a very realistic thing until mass transit came about and we got the mass transiscope which (laughs) still uh, there's still some of them around so it'll be on um 
on passing trains, you'll have yeah. a series of images on the other train that you can look at, and it appears as though it's moving. That's fun. Is, yeah. Is it literally called the mass transiscope? Yep. That rules. Yeah, I... I do yeah, I didn't get the enough about that distinct feeling that each of these is sort of um, uh, extremely a dude just making up a name for them. And I like that. Oh, yeah. It, it's just absolutely slam gibberish around and put scope <laughs> at the end of it. But yeah, that was in uh, 1980, the mass transit scoop. What do we got next? So next we have the Zoopraxiscope. <laughs> <laughs> More just absolute <laughs> gibberish with scope at the end of it. Perfect. So this was 1879, invented by Ed. This is, I don't, it looks like Edward, but it's Eduard. It's E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. Fascinating. Fascinating yeah. name. Moybridge. That one is a projector with a spinning glass disc that has silhouettes painted on it. So... It's kind of like the Fenachistoscope, but you're actually projecting it so more than one okay. person can watch it. Because, yeah, I looked up an image of the, the Fenachistoscope, and the thing that I didn't understand by your description is that you, like, hold it up to a mirror, and you're looking through this slit, and it, you're yeah, seeing you're the looking reflection at the mirror. of this little disc. But this is projecting through a similar thing so that you're getting mm -hmm. that projection out. Okay, cool. Uh, so that Science is truly amazing. <laughs> oh yeah it is it, it's amazing like just the quantity of these and i'm leaving some out because like there are so many just fun toys that people made back in the day to yeah. just create that illusion of movement people are just so bored yeah gotta do something it and when i think about like the whole phantasmagoria and like all all of these stage shows and stuff like that it sounds like it wouldn't be that exciting to me as a modern viewer but back in the day like man these things fucking sold out yeah it's like what else is there <laughs> right it's not like there's a ton of options which brings us to the kinetoscope Ooh. so this was somewhere between 1889 and 1890 uh, invented by Edison Labs. Um, uh, it, it's one of those things where it sounds like Edison watched someone uh, use a zoopraxiscope or a zoetrope or, or something like that, and he was like, well, I could just do that. <laughs> sounds like something I could make money on. Yeah. <laughs> Let me take that and uh, just hire someone to make it so that people have to pump money into it. To soft hands. Which is functionally what he did. It's functionally um, what he did always. Oh, yeah. So it's a <laughs> continuous strip of film that's inside of a box. And you look into it via something like a, um, a microscope viewing lens. And I've, I forget if these ones were hand cranked. They were probably hand cranked. Most of these old things, they were... They would be hand cranked and you would like put a coin in and that lets you crank the whole thing once. You put a coin so in and it rolls down a slot. A small child picks it up and begins cranking. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, it was just a continuous strip of film that's like, you know, just looping around a whole bunch and you crank the thing and it shows you the film once. Um, and these wound up getting fairly popular. Uh, they started uh, making, it, it was kind of like arcades, but you would just go and watch different kinetoscopes. Yeah. Do you know when, like, film, like, uh, the film that this is projected through, presumably, was introduced to the world? Like, what the advent of that was? Oh, about the same time. I mean, like, the, I mean, ki- the sense, kinetoscope but... was one of the first uses of film. Yeah. Uh, so, around 1889, um, oh, uh, 1888. Wow. Uh, of course, it's a fucking horse. It's Of course, it's, the first film we is a horse. <laughs> so much about horses for so long. Everyone loves horses. This is why Bojack Horseman just really resonated with people <laughs> because everyone wants to watch films about horses so it seems like 1882 was when eastman george eastman of eastman kodak started mm. experimenting with like photographic film and starting to try to make something that like could approximate being viewed uh as a sequential image and then um uh, a French physiologist, uh, Etienne Jules Marier, invented the chronophotographic gun. It was a, a camera that was shaped like a rifle that photographed 12 successive oh, yeah. images each second. Yep, I, I did look that one. Uh, that was actually not just shaped like a rifle. It was a repurposed rifle. That makes a ton of sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that wasn't the, the same... No, that's Georges Méliès. Yeah. A lot of Méliès in uh, early film. This one is Marier. Marais. I don't know. How Marais. To, French is one of the languages that I am the least qualified to pronounce. <laughs> okay. After that, we have the mutoscope, which is when the flipbook kind of comes back. Yeah, hey, welcome back. Yeah. So this is invented in 1894 by... W.K.L. Dixon and Herman Kassler. And it was basically a flip book, but all of the pages are attached to a drum, and there's a little finger that's keeping the uh, pages from flipping. And you pop a coin in, you get to turn the crank once, and it actually was performing a lot better than the mutis or than the kinetoscope. Makes sense. At it's like much cert- easier, much less, me- or much more ke- mechanically simple to like produce so, an image for you. It's more mechanically simple. It also has better resolution because film at the time didn't look good. Garbage. And it was really, you know, you can just print stuff on paper. Yeah. That's fine. We're good at that uh, at that point. Yeah. And then easier to manufacture. Hmm. And on top of that, they were longer. Like a kinetoscope reel would be something around along the lines of like 20 seconds. Whereas a mutoscope would be about 60 seconds. And right. you could also just like turn turn the crank slower. 
<laughs> and now it's uh, twice the length. Also, like yeah, the kinetoscope the in kin- price had to be just like astronomically more expensive. Oh yeah, you got people making like you know ten sheets of film at a time. And the uh, there are still some of these in. I, I God, I want to go to Disneyland uh, because I haven't been there in forever. But I was watching this whole fucking video <laughs> about how they have a bunch of Disney's old mutoscopes at one of the okay, uh, train cool. stations yeah it's like god i want to watch that that sounds awesome <laughs> so then we have the first animation on film uh so the kinetoscope didn't have uh anything that was on actual film and this was actually after we started exhibiting films in cinemas it was after the first um the first film projector. When was that? Uh, this is just giving me the Zoopraxiscope. Uh, Otomar Anschutz developed his first electro electrotechoscope in 1886. <laughs> very good, very good. But but that was a bunch of glass plates. Uh, so and every single time that you get into any of these, then it's it's just like Wikipedia hole. Right. Like nobody's business. There's just infinite amount of time that you can spend there. Yeah. Um, but this this film is like actual animation as we would maybe conceive of it today. Yep. So this was uh done on a chalkboard and it's you know, people making silly faces and uh there was cutout animation in there as well. Mm. There's... So it is, yeah, it's the first cutout animation, which is kind of the first stop motion animation on film. And they did some like reverse stuff too, right? Where they um, yeah. reversed the the drawing of it and like, um, but it, it, and it feels much, much closer to stop motion than it does anything we described today, but it's kind of comical on a, um, on a chalkboard, like there being the, the physical uh like powder bits and things like that but it's the it's so low resolution that it kind of doesn't matter but it really there's a lot of erasing in it too yeah it it very much uses the fact that it's a a real media and there's a couple of like extra hands that sneak in here and there and otherwise reminds me so much of like early flash animation oh yeah in a in a time is a flat circle kind of way (laughs) well Flat animation or flash animation is very similar to cutout animation. Yeah. Like me- just because y- you can kind of like make your cutouts and then just move them around. The film also just sort of felt like a tech demo in a lot of ways too. Oh, definitely. And a lot of these early films were. Yeah. Um, this was, oh, I kind of skipped over. I did want to just touch on, uh, Melier's oh, uh, sure. a trip to the moon because that was the first fictional film that we're aware of. Oh, that's a good um, point. That wasn't just like capturing something for the purpose of capturing it or, you know, of an event, et cetera, et cetera. Right. A, a lot of, you know, obviously the earliest film is just women leaving a factory and there was a lot of stuff that was just like, you know, people moving around and, and people trying to sort out, you know, how horses move. Uh, the early, there was a very early one that was a bet 
on uh, whether or not a horse lifted all of its feet at some point when it was galloping. <laughs> so, like, they filmed a horse. And? I I don't know. Dang it. I think it does. I don't know. <laughs> that wasn't the important will. part of it. That's the only thing I took away is that I wanted to know God, immediately that, yeah, that, whether I guess not. that's my problem is that I, I didn't look up enough about horses for this episode. I'll never forgive you. Uh, yeah, it's it's all but just I may horses. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, 1902 was a trip to the moon, um, and that that one's actually it, it's a really interesting movie if you haven't seen it, uh, and even if you haven't seen it recently, it's worth a rewatch because three years ago we actually found the colorized version. And uh, also the ending, which makes it clear that the movie is basically Starship Troopers. Like uh, in plot? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It, it's like, oh, we need to go to the moon. Oh, well, we'll go to the Another thing that's really cool with the colorized version is when that bullet hits the moon in the eye with the non-colorized version, it looks like it's crying. That is blood. That uh, makes much more sense, actually. Right? Uh, but yeah, it, it's these uh, jackasses go into the moon, launch themselves to the moon, find the moon men, uh, beat the hell out of them. It, like, they don't do any anything intelligent aside from build a moon rocket in this. <laughs> and then they, they go back to Earth. Uh, one of the aliens is on the bullet that they somehow launch back to earth and they beat the hell out of the alien and then make a statue of one of the guys. That is starship troopers. The whole plot is there. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What's next? So next we have pixelation. So this is stop motion with human actors. And this started in uh, 1908 with a film called Hotel Electrique. 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 Uh, and it's just stop motion of a woman getting her hair done. Like, they would move her hair around, take a picture, move it around, take another picture. Uh, so, that's... And that's what pixelation is. Makes sense to me. You won't... There's not a lot of it... Uh, done as primetime animation or like um like full length animation but it's used a lot in advertising there was a show in the uk called angry kid that was all pixelation but it had uh like weird masks on all the actors so it looks if you didn't know better you would think it was just claymation oh interesting okay and then that brings us to the last thing we're covering to the, for this episode, because we are uh, breaking... Well, well, we'll get to why we're breaking it off here. <laughs> uh, the first keyframed animation, and also the first animation with a like character with characteristics. Uh, and how do you define that? Like, what... What gives a character like um, a defining instance of an idea rather than... 
I guess there's like there's like personality here and like uh, right yeah right that's the whole thing uh we're talking of course about Gertie the Dinosaur by Windsor McKay good old Gertie um and yeah that's the whole thing is that she has a name she has an attitude uh she has baditude <laughs> and we we stand a good dinosaur facts so i i did find this story that i wanted to uh get out there when he was trying to sort out the name for gertie and this is in uh a guy named paul satterfield talking in an interview with milt gray he heard a couple of sweet boys which was a term for gay men (laughs) okay out out in the hall talking to each other and one of them said oh birdie wait a minute in a very sweet voice he thought it was a good name but wanted to be a girl's name instead of a boy's, so he called it Gertie. Holy shit. <laughs> I just like that story. That is exactly how I name all of my D&D characters. Yeah, as you just <laughs> wait until you see, you hear some sweet boys talking out in the hall. Right, and then decide on the gender of the character and change it from a B to a G. That's how yep. I got... Um... Your your favorite character, Gart. <laughs> exactly love you gart yep so yeah let's talk about um this film a little bit more i think because it's it is one of the ones that um i think i had certainly seen before um talking about this or even before being interested in the history of animation per se because it's 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 one of these these cultural artifacts it is and it's one of the best the best preserved ones yeah specifically that we can find from the time as well so initially what this was was a stage show where Windsor McKay oh. had this like, yeah, he had a projector and he would go on stage and be like, yo, I'm going to show you my dinosaur. Here come my dinosaur. Check her out. Oh my yo, dinosaur, God. stop fucking dancing. <laughs> that makes much quit, more quit sense. Quit eating that tree. Because like one of the... The things that I said to you when we were talking about it initially was like, this is like somebody showing off their like performing chicken that they've trained. And that's kind of exactly what it was drawing yeah. from. It's... The posters were exactly that. It was watch Windsor McKay and his amazing dinosaurus. What a funny way to like realize how to make a quick buck off of this. <laughs> right? Is that... Well, in Windsor McKay prior to this and even going on like he was the artist behind little ninemo in dreamland like he's an amazing illustrator i didn't know that that's cool to know yeah i found a whole documentary on him his shit looks amazing that's um Uh, a beautiful book if people haven't haven't gotten a chance to uh to take a look at it it is like uniquely strange uh about a a kid who every night goes to bed and he's like bed gets up and walks him to somewhere new or descends yep. into the ground or you know transports him somewhere physically it, but it is beautiful it, i didn't realize that surreal, was the same person it's gorgeous yep that's so cool same damn guy um i also <laughs> you you mentioned this briefly but i really like that gertie has uh has attitude hey she tries to dance and he tries to stop it's basically footloose right yeah yeah, one um, one thing that is worth noting is the um, uh, is 
it's the kind of thing that I definitely forgot about for a second until I was going back and looking through some of these pages is the uh, absolute racism in these cartoons in the oh, Nemo yeah. Dreamland. I gave it a very like um, uh, unaffusive praise. Unaffusive praise. And then you look back and it's just like, oh no. Oh. Oh, there's like six little black sambos in this show. Yeah. What? Ooh. They are often in cages. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. It sucks that that is going to happen so often when we look back at this stuff. Like a hundred times out of a hundred, huh? Pretty much. That sucks. People loved being racist back in the day. It was their favorite shit. So yeah, he had the stage show. And then after that, someone came up to him and was like, hey, why don't we just make this into a film? So that's how the film came about. And this was before uh, synchronized sound, so they just added those mm. um, the titles in the middle where it's supposed to just be the guy talking. That makes sense. Yeah, so it's like like old, old style, what you're picturing of like um, silent movies. Yeah, but it's still like... It looks so cool, and there's a lot of, like, background action happening and all that. Oh, and the other thing is that this was the first instance of keyframing. Right, that's that's the thing that I think that distinguishes it above others, because there's other stop-motion animation that we've already discussed. But, yeah, tell the people why keyframing is different. So, with keyframing, what you do is you sort out, like, the beginning, the middle, and the end of an action... And then you uh, draw the frames in between to kind of just fill in. Called, as you could imagine, in-betweens. Yeah. (laughs) I believe this film is on twos, uh, which I guess we should also explain that, which uh, explains the name of the podcast. Yeah, and we may have said it in the... Uh, one of the early episodes but i can't remember but on twos refers to so when you have frames you have frames per second that form your animation um a lot of stuff is on like 24 frames a second what on twos refers to is that you only animate a new you only have a new drawing every two frames um it changes the pacing of how things look and it changes the like feel of movement and things like that um and on twos, 24 frames a second is sort of what you may, what you likely canonically think of as animation. Um, yeah. One of the, the things that's been interesting in discussions lately is because of like what deep learning has been able to do is that you can um, have programs that interpolate between or interpolate between um, uh, a, a 24 frame piece of animation and make it so that it is effectively on ones. Um, Wait, did I send you that? Um, did I send you that Popeye at 60 FPS thing? Oh god, that sounds awful. It's it's unnerving. So, and that's sort um, of what I was getting to. Yeah, is that it sucks. <laughs> Don't do this. <laughs> well, so 24 frames a second is fine. Yeah. Like if you take a look, even at more modern animation, like, uh, did you watch Invincible? Yes. Okay, so a large bit of Invincible is just like talking heads and they'll go down to like animating on threes or on fours Mm -hmm. but when they get to that like hyper gory right like fast action they're just going on ones no and i and and i i think that makes sense right i don't wanna it does it it makes sense to do it 
at certain times. And what animating on twos gives you is it gives you the ability to slow down time and make more well, stuff and happen. save money. That too, right? Um, but it's a it's a tool like any other. And so I guess the thing I was sort of railing against a little bit in my soapbox was doing it indiscriminately and taking away the artist's tool to um, deliver a, a like consistent and interesting experience. Uh, well, and the other problem is, um, I I would if you think that the frame interpolation thing is. If that sounds like a good idea, what I would encourage you to do is go on your TV, turn on frame interpolation, <laughs> like turn it on to like a sports mode so that it is interpolating frames and then watch anime because anime is typically animated on threes and it will look unnerving. It's, uh, it's like a soap opera. The problem is that the... Like, you'll have a hand that's, like, up, and then you'll have it out to the side, and that motion would happen within one frame. Mm -hmm. But because it's on threes, then your frame interpolation is just going to kind of, like, morph the hand along a straight line from one to the other, rather than the arc that it actually should be moving on. Uh So it just, it looks very upsetting it's one of those things where you can do it but like computers just don't do it very well yet yeah and not just do it very well but there's sometimes where it's like literally impossible like it just doesn't make sense oh definitely anyway i've climbed down from my soapbox all right (laughs) uh so that brings us up to cell animation which is where we are going to start our next episode because cell animation is a big thing and it's kind of the whole thing that happens up until computers. Yeah. So join us next week where we will further dive down the, uh, the history of animation pre-computers. Yep. I've been Will. I've been Adric. We don't have to do this anymore because we have a canned outro. I'm still gonna. I'm gonna do an awful overlap we're gonna do of the it two. And we're gonna. Yeah, we're we're just gonna run them at the same fucking time. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. Good luck. Alan. Big As thanks to the composer of our theme, Miles Morkery, yep. and to Bernadette Meeker, the artist for our thumbnail. We're on Twos Pod on Twitter.com. Our website is on Twos.club. You're the best. Good night. Good night. <laughs>